The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The hot topic in Civil War writing for the past 15 years or so has been memory, how we know what happened and how we think about it today. The hot topic in the last five to ten years, guerrilla warfare. Irregulars, partisans, bushwhackers, whatever you call them, with American troops fighting a non-state enemy in various places around the world, it's not surprising that our interest should turn to the Civil War experience of irregular warfare. And now you can find both topics together in an essay collection titled The Civil War Guerrilla, unfolding the black flag in history, memory, and myth. It's edited by Matthew C. Halbert and Joseph M. Bayline, Jr., and we'll talk tonight with Matt Halbert on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University here at the third floor of the quiet, nearly deserted Brewster Building. It's Reading Day 2015, the day between the last day of classes and the beginning of exams. But although I'm here on campus, I'm not speaking for the university, not representing anyone but myself, nor will my guest do anything but the same, speak just for himself. It's how we do it on Civil War Talk Radio this week and every week. 
Well, it is a quiet uh, time on campus uh, this evening with classes over with, exams about to start. And uh, for the for me as uh, the chair of the history department, that means it's time to write the faculty evaluations for the year. Easily the most distasteful part of the job. Uh, I don't feel uh, nearly qualified to evaluate my colleagues and peers as to how they do their job any more than they can really evaluate me. But someone's got to do it. It's what we have to do. And I can't tell you how happy I am to be doing this particular chore for the last time as I'll be uh, turning over the reins of the department in August to uh, my successor, who was named this week. And I'm delighted to see we have a, uh, an excellent incoming chair for the fall of 2015. Well, today is the end of classes. Today is also uh, Game 7 of the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. My Detroit Red Wings will be going in action against somebody tonight. Uh, I'm not saying I would have a window open on the computer screen as we talk, because that would be not giving you full value, so I'm not going to do that. But I will be watching them after the show as I work on faculty evaluations, which means if the Red Wings fall behind, the evaluations become increasingly harsh. Whereas if they win, it's fives all around on the five-point scale. Everybody scores 100. Um, it's just you know human nature. I'm, I'm a creature of emotion. It's bound to happen. Well, of course, I'm mostly kidding when I say that I do try to evaluate my colleagues fairly, uh, since merit raises depend on their evaluations. But on the other hand, since the state has allocated no money for merit raises, uh, this is, I think, the fifth or maybe sixth consecutive year, uh, it's tempting to just give everybody a four and go home and watch the rest of the game on the couch. Uh, maybe I'll do that instead. We'll see. Anyway, after the semester ends and things quiet down, it'll be time to go on the annual uh, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours trip, uh, this hallowed ground coming up in May. If you haven't signed up and have a few grand lying around or whatever it costs for this uh, excursion, I encourage you to think about it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I certainly enjoy it every year and look forward to it. Uh, we'll be going to Manassas and Antietam and uh, Gettysburg, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, Appomattox, Petersburg, many places, and uh, really get a uh, intense week-long view of the Civil War in the Eastern Theater. Uh, so if you can come, be happy to see you there. If you're anywhere in that part of the country, uh, let me know. Send me an email, uh, come out to the battlefields when our tour is coming through, and we can stop and say hello. I've done that before. Uh, uh, met with uh, longtime listener Frank Beecham on several occasions uh, in uh, full U.S. military garb, and he helps uh, explain the role of the soldier to the people who come on the tour. He does it just to be a good guy. Uh, maybe they give him tips, I don't know, uh, but he doesn't need it. He's a, uh, an excellent presenter, and anyone who wants to uh, come and say hello anywhere on the trip, always welcome to talk in person with Civil War Talk Radio listeners. You can find out what's coming up on the upcoming shows, as always, from www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney is keeping it up to date there, and now I've finally gotten around to sending him the, the, the current shows, and we're, um, I owe him some more because we've just got a few on the list right now. Next week, Tom Parson uh, will be with us. He's the author of Work for Giants, The Battle in 
campaign and battle of Tupelo, Harrisburg, Mississippi, June, July, 1864. Then uh, the 13th, Brian Jordan, marching home, Union veterans and their unending civil war. Working on a lineup for May, for March, not March, for uh, May 20th. And then it'll be on, on the road on the 27th, so no, sh- no live show that day. And we'll be back with a few more shows in June before we come to the end of the season, take a month off to recharge, get the lineup set for the fall, and, and back with more shows. If you have suggestions, send them anytime. Go to the website. Go to the Facebook page. Send them through that. Send them to the email. Um, send me your money, as always. Always welcome through the PayPal button on the website. Uh, and I'll use it to buy more of the interesting books that we talk about here. Uh, and tonight, a, a book of uh, really uh, very high interest titled The Civil War Guerrilla, Unfolding the Black Flag in History, Memory, and Myth. It's edited by Joseph M. Bayline Jr. and Matthew C. Hulbert, and it looks at a, a fascinating variety of, of new approaches to the question of guerrilla warfare in 1861 to 1865, and the war uh, up into the 20th and 21st centuries. So, to join us and talk about it, one of the co-editors, Matthew C. Hulbert. Matthew, are you there? I am here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. You and I have corresponded before, I think, in context, perhaps, of the Civil War Monitor. Do you have a connection there? Uh, what do you do with the Monitor? Uh, so for a couple of years since the Monitor's founding, I was the book review editor, uh, but the reins there have recently been passed on to Brian Jordan, who it sounds like you'll have on uh, in the coming weeks. And I'm now serving as a special projects manager, uh, sort of a jack-of-all-trades, MacGyver-type figure, helping get out special issues of the magazine. Very good. So with... with- Paper clips and chewing gum, you arrange massively entertaining issues of this, this periodical. Uh, listeners, if you're not a subscriber to the Civil War Monitor, it's definitely worth considering. It is really the successor in spirit in some ways to uh, Keith Poulter's uh, late and much-missed North and South. Uh, the Civil War Monitor is really the, the, the only, I don't know what to say, modern Civil War magazine out there. Uh, not an academic journal as such, but a, but not a supermarket tabloid either. Uh, it, it's worth your, your getting, and I'm not paid to say that. I don't write for them. Uh, and I'm, in fact, a paying subscriber. I use some of the money donated to this show to keep my subscription up to date, so I appreciate that. So uh, is the Monitor uh, doing all right? The Monitor is doing great. Uh, subscriptions are humming along. We're getting a lot of great feedback from subscribers, and we think our first special newsstand-only issue was a hit. Uh, it looked at the Civil War from A to Z, so we took a few terms for each letter of the alphabet and gave sort of a comprehensive look at the war if you want to read from cover to cover, but it also functions sort of like a coffee table book where you know you could just flip to page 37 and look at the the terms for J and you could read for five minutes. Uh, so we're getting a lot of great feedback on that as well. What was the term for X? Oh, you're putting me on the spot here without the issue right in front of me. 
uh, uh, I want to say it, uh, maybe, xenophobia, maybe. I think we were looking at nativism, uh, but I could be way off base there. So I'm sure Terry Johnson, our editor-in-chief, is cringing somewhere if that was not the X term. Well, it, it, uh, tr- turn it around and we'll tell listeners, uh, you've got to go and buy a copy and find out for yourself. Uh, we'll make exactly. it a sales tool. So uh, according to the uh, the list of contributors here, when you're not working on the uh, the monitor, you're working on your doctoral degree. Uh, where and what's your topic? Uh, so my dissertation, which is now a, a manuscript, it was defended in January, looks at the collision of guerrilla violence in Missouri and Kansas with Civil War memory. Uh, so looking not only at how the conflict has been remembered uh, locally at, or at the regional level, but also how it has been re-remembered or sanitized from national memory narratives of the conflict. So this book ties right in, into that. And uh, congratulations on defending. So you are now uh, Dr. Holbert. I am, but just Matt is fine, please. Uh, well, well, congratulations. I'm, I'm delighted to, to hear that. The uh, Starting at the beginning, always a good place uh, to begin in this book. Uh, there's an a forward by uh, Christopher Phillips, who then also has an essay in here, and in in uh, in the forward, he talks quite a bit about Michael Fellman. Uh, a lot of listeners, I'm sure, have read Inside War, but reading it, I got the feeling this was almost a a, a fest shift for for Michael Fellman. There, there seemed to be a lot of people with connections to him. Uh, was that intentional? Was was his work? looking over the shoulders of everybody writing for this this volume? Well, I, I think it would be fair to say that without uh, his work, there would be no uh, there would be no book here from the University of Kentucky Press. Um, it's fair to say that everyone in the collection is responding to Inside War in one way or another. I think the most interesting uh, sort of tribute, and if, if any of your listeners ever had a chance to meet Michael Fellman, they would know how much he loved a good argument uh, and how he was willing to sort of go toe-to-toe with anyone about history, but especially about guerrillas. So the majority of our contributors uh, are actually sort of breaking direction with a lot of the ideas he first posited in Inside War, but looking at him as the foundation, uh, wherein we wouldn't be able to go in these new directions if he hadn't opened, been one of the first historians to really open the door for the scholarly study of Civil War guerrillas. I, after reading this, I went back and looked at uh, my book on the Army of the Ohio. Uh, has a blurb from uh, the late Professor Fellman on the back, uh, obviously a positive one, or they wouldn't have put it there. And after reading this book and realizing how, as you put it, how uh, you know eager, eager for an argument, willing to contest. Uh, uh, how much he apparently enjoyed doing that. I, I, f- I felt a great sense of relief that uh, <laughs> that he liked my, my book after all, uh, because if he hadn't, he would have really said so. Uh, so he, he, as you say, really launches the, the scholarly look at gorillas. Uh, in his book, people, uh, people are bad. Uh, the, the People commit horrible, horrible deeds during the Civil War on both sides. Uh, is it safe to say that's a point from which a lot of these essays diverge a little bit? 
Well, I think it's fair to say that people are doing bad things in war because if we if we believe Twain and I happen to in this case, the point of war is to kill someone, and in most cases, that's a stranger who's done nothing to you uh, previously that would have led you to kill them, other than being on the wrong side of you and the conflict. So none of our authors are particularly taking issue with the fact that guerrillas are doing very bad things. But what I think an area where we're trying to add some new complexity to the war as a whole is through this comparative lens and that guerrillas aren't the only ones doing bad things. Uh, the regular war is doing some really bad stuff and they're killing way more people. Uh, but in a lot of ways, especially when we look at the memory of the conflict, guerrillas have been used as this mechanism to sort of scrub clean uh, the killing fields, the sunken lane at Antietam, uh, or the the slaughter pens at Chickamauga, we've always got this slightly less civilized conflict going on in the backwoods that we can point to to preserve an idea of the regular war that we like. Uh, but in reality, both are pretty awful, and both are spilling their fair share of blood. So it, it's not so much a, a defense of the guerrillas, but, but pointing out they're not that they're part of the, the same war. Uh, how did we ever get the idea they're not part of the same war? Well, that's a, a, a very a good question. It's also a very long, complicated answer uh, that basically goes back to sort of the foundations of the way people started remembering the war in its immediate aftermath. Uh, we're still dealing with Victorian Americans and especially Easterners uh, they're looking to remember this war in a civilized way, whether you're a winner or a loser. The one way we can make sure there's a good sort of triumphant narrative coming out of this is that both sides conducted themselves uh, in a gentlemanly, chivalric, honorable manner. And the best way to show that you did that is to show who did not do that. Uh, well, and guerrillas made a great target on let that. Let me step part. in for a second then, because I know there's more to that answer, but we're going to take a short break. And sure. come back and see how how guerrillas are counterposed against the regular war to give us these ideas. We're talking tonight with Matthew C. Hulbert, co-editor of The Civil War Guerrilla, Unfolding the Black Flag in History, Memory, and Myth. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Matt Holbert, co-editor of The Civil War Guerrilla, Unfolding the Black Flag in History, Memory, and Myth. We ended our first segment talking about the question of why guerrilla war in the Civil War was really seen as a separate issue from the, the, the main force war, the battles that of the Army of the Potomac, Army of Northern Virginia, why historians for so many years, and in popular culture as well, regarded the guerrilla conflicts as something separate. And Matt, you're suggesting that uh, if you if you make the guerrillas the, uh, the the atavistic, violent killers, that leaves room to make the regular armies uh, noble, Victorian, chivalric gentlemen. Is that, that a fair summary? Uh, yes, that's I'd say that is a fair summary. So the uh, the the approach taken here in these articles, uh, uh, in, in Christopher Phillips' essay, for example, he, he argues that ideology uh, motivates the guerrillas. They're not simply randomly killing people for sport or for personal greed or, or other motives, but they're they're just as politically motivated as the the two organized governments. That's correct. Um, Chris Phillips's essay, and then also the essay by uh, David and Patrick, David Brown and Patrick mm-hmm. in the UK, are looking at many of the same issues in the Piedmont areas of South Carolina and North Carolina. Uh, when we go back to Fellman's Inside War, one of the main takeaways we get is that gorillas are sort of these long-haired, bearded, maniacs running around in the backwoods of Kentucky and Missouri. And in some cases they are, uh, but in other cases they do have genuine ideological or political or economic ties to either the union or the Confederacy. And they're just choosing to uh, act on those beliefs in a different way from the men who join up with the regular war. So their, their purposes, uh, so they are, Violent, but everybody's violent, and they're they're rational. They're they're out trying to accomplish things. I thought one of the most fascinating approaches, uh, although I'm not sure how well it translates to the written format, was the uh, uh, to to apply digital humanities concepts uh, to to create a uh, we just call it an animated map of guerrilla action in Missouri. Uh, this is the the essay by Andrew Fialka. Yes. Now, for for people uh, not uh, fully uh, into the academic scene, the phrase digital humanities may require some definition. I know it did for me until recently when I found out this podcast counts as digital humanities, and my <laughs> dean thinks I'm way ahead of everybody because I've been doing it for 11 years. Uh, I didn't know that's what it was, but hey, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, in in the case of, of, of Fialka's essay, he argues that, that you can put all the incidents of guerrilla violence in Missouri on a map and then put all the incidents of Union town occupation on the same map. 
but it's not a paper map. It's an electronic one. And then when you set it running, uh, you get some remarkable patterns. It, I'm struggling with this because I, I haven't looked at the website where this happens. Are you familiar with it? I am. Uh, so the technology Andrew's project utilized is called ArcGIS. Um, and I will do my best to give you sort of the Luddite's explanation. He is much more the master of it than I am. Mm-hmm. But he's basically harnessing just massive amounts of census data and other geographic reference points and waypoints. Uh, and then he's harvesting even more data from the OR and these other large uh, official reports and compendiums. And he's basically running all of, computing all of this data uh, and then keeping track of what patterns emerge. So one of two of the big questions we've always asked about gorillas is who or what is a gorilla? And maybe more importantly, why did they decide to fight as gorillas? What are they actually doing? Uh, and anecdotally, most of our SAS deal with those questions in one way or another. Andrew is taking a much more technologically advanced uh, and in some ways scientific approach. Uh, but in fairness to his approach, he's very much looking at guerrilla bands who are large enough to be operating at the state level. Uh, so he's following how their movements follow the movements of occupation forces or union garrisons, uh, which is a very different matter than neighborhood violence or violence going on literally between households or in these very small hamlets and communities uh, that aren't even touched by those occupation forces or garrisons. So at the same time, he is showing in some ways we can map chaos. He's also highlighting how the guerrilla war is this very, it has a lot of depth. It's very complex. uh, And we're going to need all of these different approaches at once if we're ever going to try to put all of the puzzle pieces together. I'm trying to visualize what his product would look like in terms of presenting the data visually. Uh, there are some some maps in the book itself, but they don't really do justice to to uh, an electronic project. I, but in my mind's eye, I'm picturing the map of the state of Missouri on my screen, and then I start to see symbols appear where Union forces have occupied a town and then left again. And shortly after, other symbols indicating that some large-scale guerrilla violence has occurred and that if you run this day by day through the war, animate it so it moves on its own, you see a pattern of, of the violence following the Union occupation. Uh, that's, it, a, that's, a, that's essentially correct, uh, the way the map works when you play it in its animated state. If any mm-hmm. of your listeners have ever been to the Lincoln Presidential Library in Springfield, mm-hmm. where you can watch the Civil War in four minutes, uh, that, that video display, in some ways, that mirrors what's going on with Andrew's map, but it also does quite a bit more than that. And I would urge uh, anyone who purchases the book, or even if you don't purchase the book, to still visit the website. It's hosted by the University of Georgia's uh, Virtual History Center. You can also stop and interact with the maps. Uh, You can hover over them. You can select which pools of data to look at. Uh, In some ways, you could even conduct your own research with the products of Andrew's research. This is why Joe and I, uh, my co-editor, are always joking that he needs to be careful or he's going to put the rest of us out of business with this digital humanities approach. Uh, we're all just sort of scrambling to keep up with him. Well, it, it's exciting. It's one of those things that, that uh, makes this field so fascinating. I, I was talking with a, uh, 
uh, a lifelong learning group here in Greenville, North Carolina this week of uh, mostly retired people, a lot of them from the university, and they'd asked me to give some lectures on the Civil War. And I was talking to them about your book and about Adam Dean's book that I, I uh, discussed with him last week and how uh, Dean presents some new new interpretive uh, approaches to understanding the causes of the war. And, and this book here has uh, this, this fascinating chapter using the digital humanities approach, but also other essays that, again, take new looks at the guerrilla, uh, meaning of guerrilla warfare. And it's just always something new. There, there's The subject doesn't get boring because there are so many new ways to look at it. And you're right, maybe digital humanities will change the way all of us do history in the next 20 years. Uh, but if, if so, it would be for the better. It would be more interesting. Let me go to a, a more traditional question. The subtitle, uh, Unfolding the Black Flag in History, Memory, and Myth, uh, is was there a literal black flag? Did people actually carry one around when they went raiding? So this is an interesting question, and it's actually one that we get asked quite a bit. Uh, we address it a little bit in the introduction. To our knowledge, there are no black flags have survived. Uh, I, I think a lot of people are imagining a column of 20 or 30 gorillas with sort of a Jolly Roger or a pirate flag riding around in the woods. Um, there are written descriptions of guerrilla columns or even guerrilla hunting columns, men who are specially trained and assigned to go kill uh, particularly troublesome guerrillas, marching with these flags. As I said, none have survived, uh, but metaphorically, it's also sort of become this symbol uh, of how we've understood or maybe misunderstood in history the guerrilla war itself. Uh, so when we talk about unfolding the black flag, we're also we're addressing uh, whether or not that was a physical wartime reality, but we're also trying to sort of pull back that flag or pull back the curtain and really show people what's out there. As I said before, these aren't just maniacs running around in the woods. Uh, there's a lot going on here, and there's a lot of work still to be done to uncover more that we just don't have the space or the time to do in this one volume. Well, there, there is a lot. I was particularly interested in the flag question as uh an East Carolina University pirate. Uh, that is our team here. And at the football games, they run up the black Jolly Roger uh, flag before the game. But when they get to the end of the third quarter, uh, they bring it down and the announcer uh, describes in vivid terms, no quarter for the opponent. And they run up a red flag uh, with no quarter emblazoned on it. And, and the uh, pirate symbol, and uh, the team goes out and hopefully outmaneuvers the enemy in the fourth quarter. Uh, but it's very much part of the local culture here, the black flag, the no-quarter flag. Uh, it's a little bit ironic after reading a book like yours where you realize these are people really getting seriously hurt, and it's not just a game. Uh, the pirates were bad people too. But... It is something that, uh, as you say, it lives in, in popular memory and in, in culture, the idea of the black flag uh, and the idea that, uh, that these guerrillas you know, fought under a different code. Now, one of the major points of, of the book is how we get to that, how we get to this popular cultural notion. Uh, and in your own essay, you, you point out the battle over how to remember guerrillas doesn't start in the 20th century or even the 1890s. It's 
it's right there from the get-go. Yes. So my essay, my personal essay, looks at the ordeal of Thomas Goodman. Uh, he has the misfortune of being on a train that is overtaken by a uh, Missouri bushwhacker, a uh, captain named William Bloody Bill Anderson. Uh, essentially, Anderson pulls uh, Goodman and his compatriots off the train. He has them all kneel next to the tracks, and all are executed except for Goodman. Uh, a company of Union soldiers responds to the atrocity, uh, but Anderson and his men, he's got several hundred guerrillas riding with him, which is an anomalously large force uh, for any point in the guerrilla war. There are really only maybe two or three times when this many bushwhackers are together under the semblance of a unified command. So they wait for them in the woods around this large open field. They wait for these uh, their mounted infantry soldiers. They ride in. And then guerrillas just pour out of the woods on all sides. Uh, a massacre ensues. Bodies are mutilated. Several scalps are taken. Uh, one account even says that there are so many dead Union soldiers that guerrillas can jump from one end of the field on top of the bodies without ever actually touching the grass. Uh, so when we're dealing with atrocities and bloodshed like this, it becomes imperative not just for guerrillas but also for the people who clashed with them to try to seize control of the way this fight is going to be remembered because it looks so different from the narrative of the war that we're used to. For guerrillas, they're trying to ensure that their service is going to be taken seriously in their home states or in their local communities. And for the Union men, in this case, they were men from Iowa who were thrown into combat against guerrillas. They're trying to make sure that their Union compatriots aren't going to just say, well, you were participating out in this sideshow while we were fighting at Gettysburg or Cold Harbor. Uh, so everybody has this self-service going on and is really just trying to take control of the, leg the guerrilla war's legacy. So, so Thomas Goodman, who, who's the one person not killed uh, from the Union soldiers on the train, is then uh, Anderson's captive, and he witnesses this other massacre shortly Correct. afterward. And so he's trying to, so and he writes about it. The I think it's called a thrilling story. Uh, he immediately writes a book to to make people remember this. But we, we talked earlier about how the historians and, and the public at large have compartmentalized the guerrilla war by to serve as a foil to the, the, the regular war. The guerrillas are the crazy bearded, long-haired guys who just kill for no reason compared to Pickett's men nobly going up the hill at Gettysburg. Uh, so, so Goodman's motive in, in trying to get people to remember this I mean, all all those guys did. You know, it sounds horrible to say it. They got pulled off a train and, and executed. What 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 is the memory he's trying to to preserve there? Well, there are a couple things going on with Goodman's narrative because, on one hand, uh, even though he tries to downplay it in the narrative, he's very much writing this for posterity. He has sort of this nice dedication. He's writing this for his children, but. It's also going on sale for a very special price before supplies end. So there's there's an economic component going on with these memoirs. But in a broader sense, what Goodman is trying to achieve uh, is making sure that Union soldiers who are operating further in the Western theater and specifically soldiers who are clashing with guerrillas aren't going to be punished by other Union soldiers with the idea that you faced an inferior enemy. 
Uh, and this is where we run into a lot of problems because to make this enemy seem so worthwhile, good the, the real thrill of Goodman's account is somehow he survives this week in captivity with these uncivilized madmen. He escapes to tell the story, uh, but at the same time, to trump up and make it really sound like an accomplishment, he has to paint Anderson and the rest of these gorillas as almost these just superhuman killing machines. Um, so in a sense, it's you're creating strength for yourself by making your enemy seem all the more formidable. But what Goodman and others like him end up doing in the process is helping this transformation of Anderson and other gorillas into sideshow freaks. Uh, when you describe someone who rides around with long flowing hair with pistols strapped all over themselves, massacring and killing and taking scalps for no reason, uh, you start to isolate them from this standard Victorian idea of the soldier that we have. Over time, that process builds and builds and builds. Uh, and then we end up with the idea and the American imagination that these guerrillas have no ideology in some cases, that they're just nihilistic criminals taking advantage of the fog of war. I mean, this is where Jesse James comes from. Correct. So, um, yeah, go this ahead. Is, this is, so this is in many ways, one of the things I love to do with students is tell me the first thing that pops into your head when you think of Jesse James. And virtually all of them say, well, he's a cowboy. He's a gunslinger. Uh, <laughs> there's a reason they think that. Uh, what most of them don't know is that he and his brother Frank and the younger brothers and all these other people these historical characters that we think of as Western outlaws started as some of the most diehard Confederate guerrillas. Uh, and one of the easiest ways to get rid of them in the post-war period is to slowly Westernize them. Where do these uncivilized characters belong? They belong in the Wild West. Uh, and this isn't something unique to just Missouri. Rod Andrews' essay looks at Mance Jolly, who is essentially South Carolina's version of Jesse James uh, and how he ends up exported to the wilds of the West, uh, and so much so that we can't even completely recover his story. So it, it's, there's motives on all sides to transform our historical memory of these guerrillas uh, from what they really were, whether they were just fighting for ideology, uh, fighting uh, for the same motives as other soldiers, or if they really had the, these other ideas going on. We're going to take another short break, and we'll come back and talk some more with our guest tonight, Matthew C. Hulbert, co-editor of The Civil War Guerrilla, Unfolding the Black Flag in History, Memory, and Myth. It's published by the University of Kentucky Press. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. 
The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Talking today with Matt Hulbert, co-editor of The Civil War Guerrilla, Unfolding the Black Flag in History, Memory, and Myth. We were talking in the last section about the transformation in memory of some of these guerrilla uh, fighters, uh, people like Bloody Bill Anderson of Missouri, uh, and later uh, others like Frank and Jesse James from uh, wartime sort of monstrous wild uh, killer image into later Western outlaws. Uh, I, I was that set me to thinking of one of the points that's made both in the essay about Mance Jolly, the uh, you say the South Carolina version of Jesse James, uh, and and. Uh, in some of the writing about uh, other Confederate guerrillas, is they, if you're going to portray these guys as good guys, uh, then you know they can't be wild killers anymore. And it put me in mind of uh, Woody Guthrie's song about Pretty Boy Floyd, uh, <laughs> another you know Western outlaw. Uh, but he he says uh, you know some men will rob you with a six gun and some with a fountain pen. Uh, you'll never see an outlaw drive a family from their home the way a banker will do. Uh, so the, the the Robin Hood story, the 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 outlaw who's actually on the side of the little people, uh, it seems like a lot of gorillas get get pushed into that. And even Jesse James, when you said you, your students think of him as a Westerner, I, my first thought was you would say your students think of him as a a good guy because he, uh, you know, he, he he fought hypocrites and and cowards and he was really uh kind to his family and uh you know yeah he robbed trains but that was just the rich people's money anyway well the the social banditry angle is particularly interesting when we're dealing with gorillas because in most places where guerrilla warfare is the regular war experience uh it's a household war and this is something that joe beeline my co-editor is very much on the forefront of in the sense that rather than this separation between the battlefront and the home front, we're blurring that line with the guerrilla war and those two things become one and the same. War is waged from and upon the household. And when that becomes the case, women and children step in not only as soldiers themselves, but as quartermasters, as intelligence officers and as diplomats. So it's ironic later that so many guerrillas pick up this reputation as Robin Hoods who protect women and children when in many ways the very brand of warfare that they wage and then try to defend their families from 
is designed to destroy those households from within. After the Lawrence massacre in Missouri, the only way you can really clamp down on guerrillas is to exile their families. So you kick them out of several of the worst offending counties that are supporting guerrillas. Uh, and once you undercut that domestic supply line, guerrillas can't function anymore because they're off in the brush and they're depending on other people to function for them. And the same way a soldier in Sherman's army is depending on someone from the War Department to give him boots and ammunition and food. Um, but in terms of the Western angle, it's also ironic that so many of them are later remembered as these gunslingers and cowboys because during the war, as Megan Kate Nelson's essay shows, we really do have guerrillas already fighting in the West uh, who are later replaced. She does a great job dealing with not only how Native Americans sort of imparted the wisdom of guerrilla warfare, wisdom might not be the right word, they impart the skills for it, uh, and we assume somehow that they just disappear from the story when in reality, they're very much the belligerents of an even further Western front than most historians uh, imagine with the war. The war becomes exponentially bigger when we take her rendering of it into account. I, I admit I've been guilty as a, a student of the Civil War to find my interest sort of you know, falling as, as you go westward across the Mississippi, then you get into the far west and, uh, oh yeah, there's a battle in New Mexico, but but really, I mean, let's get back to Virginia or Tennessee, uh, where the real war is happening. And I think you're right that, that uh, Nelson's essay shows, uh, I found it fascinating to see how the guerrilla warfare that takes place is not just, is to the Native American population, it's part of an ongoing decades-long war against the encroaching Euro-Americans. And they're not so concerned if they're wearing blue or gray, they're 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 fighting both sides in some cases. Correct. Uh, and that, I mean, in a couple different ways, what Megan does with Native American guerrillas really helps us shed light on guerrillas as we move back east. On one hand, there's really no better, there's no better lens to looking at how a home field advantage or fighting in your home environment benefits the guerrilla. Uh, Native Americans are, they're astute at this. Uh, and these are the things, this is why guerrillas, as we move back east into Missouri and the Carolinas and Virginia and Kentucky, it's also why they're so effective when they have the support of those households. These are their fields, their back roads, their woods that they're fighting in. Uh, and this is a foreign environment that you're having troops cross state lines to come into. Uh, and it's just not a good situation if you're one of these outsiders coming in. But at the same time, the work with Native Americans, as you said, this is part of decades-long struggles going on. It shows that the guerrilla war, as we imagine it as part of the Civil War, was going on long before someone had the brilliant idea of lobbing a shell at Fort Sumter from Charleston Harbor. Uh, and as some of our es other essays that go into the Reconstruction period and beyond show, the guerrilla war doesn't just end uh, when signatures are put on paper at Appomattox or even later with some of the other surrenders. Uh, this is, it's a different type of war. These are insurgencies. In many ways, we could consider these men and women to be Union or Confederate terrorists at war. Uh, and they don't just lay down their arms because the general of an army that they don't belong to says, okay, we lost, everybody go back to your farms and let's try to get along now. So 
and, and this war goes on uh, again, not just on on the fields in the south, but also uh, in cultural venues. You have there's an interesting essay by uh, John Insko where he looks at plays and novels about the guerrillas, and it's fascinating to see how there's a sort of uniform picture of, uh, in, in some of them, of what the, the well, I, no, I'll, I'll take it that back. There are some pictures where the guerrillas are, are these horrible, you know, violent people, and others where they are noble defenders of the home. But what's interesting is sometimes they're noble defenders of southern homes against evil Yankees, and sometimes it's uh, noble loyalists against evil Confederates. It, it, it switches very easily. Yeah, it's, it's really a case of one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. It really just depends what side uh, of the border or the Mason-Dixon or even which side of your neighborhood, uh, in some cases, you're looking at this from. Ensko's essay is particularly interesting because he's showing how Easterners who are used to the regular war are trying to come to terms with this irregular violence in real time. So we're not dealing with 30, 40, 50 years after the fact, how can we sort of reshape or remeld memory? Some of these plays are coming out before the war even ends, and they're playing in these major urban centers. Uh, in many ways, these would be almost like educational programs for people watching these. If you don't know anything about gorillas and you watch one of these plays, it would be like watching a film today on something that you knew nothing about. You would walk away with that being your stock image uh, and what's so interesting about that is at the same time, Easterners... So, so this is American Sniper, basically. Uh, in, in some ways. Um, at, at the same time, Easterners are looking at gorillas, especially the further and further west they go, and they're horrified. Westerners and gorillas are looking back at Easterners and thinking, man, you know, we kill a couple people in a raid, and then we all go home. You guys kill 10,000 people in a day. You're the real maniacs. Why are you looking at us like we're sort of the sociopaths in this equation? So they're really sort of two sides fighting two different wars that are part of the same conflict. Uh, but it's very hard for them to communicate and remember on the same terms. So where do you see the, the scholarship going in this field? Well, as we say in the introduction of the book, for years dating back uh, to the 40s, 50s, and 60s, historians, academic historians, were really operating within the paradigm of gorillas are this interesting sideshow. They're there, but they're not particularly important. Uh, or they might be doing very important things, but they're not doing them for political or economic or mainstream reasons. Uh, and Michael Fellman's Inside War sort of represented the high ground or the high watermark of that strain of thought on Civil War guerrillas. Uh, when Daniel Sutherland's Savage Conflict came along, he really sort of blew the doors open for subsequent scholars and shows at the national level how important guerrillas really were. When we take all of these individual wars within the war and we add them up, they amount to something very significant. Uh, but when he did that, to look at guerrillas on the national level, you obviously lose a lot of the local or regional detail. So I think, and I think Joe would agree, uh, that the future of guerrilla scholarship is really going to be taking the importance bestowed upon it uh, by Sutherland's prize-winning work and then re-examining state by state or region by region using the scope that Fellman first used, uh, although we disagree somewhat with his end conclusion.
So sort of going back and filling in the gray space of this much bigger, more important model. Did did Sutherland go too far, though, in arguing that, that the guerrilla conflict was decisive in the Civil War, literally deciding who was going to win? Personally, I don't think so. Uh, in some ways, I think you could say new scholarship on the war in the West and on Reconstruction shows that irregular violence might have even been more important uh, than than Sutherland was able to show. I'm thinking particularly of Greg Downs' new work on Reconstruction, uh, this new school of thought that's arguing this isn't a phase after the war. It's just phase two of the shooting war. It's insurgencies. It's terrorists fighting occupation forces. Well, with guerrilla, with the guerrilla experience, this is what's been going on all along. So in some ways, we could say not only do, does guerrilla violence start before the regular war, but it even outlasts it by several years. Uh, and it just keeps rolling right through the reconstruction process. That might be a, a field where digital humanities, again, might, might play a critical role, because I, I think it is a tall order to argue that uh, that decision, at least in, in a political sense, depended on these small conflicts more than it did on the main force war. But if, if the evidence could show, if it could be amassed, and maybe it will take computer technology to do this, to show that uh, more people experienced the war directly through this kind of local violence, uh, including violence within within each side, as uh, uh, the essay on North Carolina and South Carolina and Piedmont shows, there's plenty of guerrilla war within Confederate states, Confederates against you know Southerners against Southerners, and uh, a certain amount of that even as far north as Pennsylvania was also happening in in the Union. Uh, so maybe we will come to a, a new understanding of the war where that is uh, much more than a sideshow. Well, we are we are certainly working on it, uh, and I think you're right. When we go back uh, and really start to take a look beneath the cloak of the regular war, we're going to find more and more that South Carolina and North Carolina, Virginia, Missouri, Kentucky, these aren't the only places where guerrilla violence is happening. Uh, it's really happening anywhere where regular violence comes in contact with citizens. And as we sort of rescue that story and pull it back to the forefront, I think, as you say, we're going to find out more and more people experienced guerrilla warfare. Uh, and it, it colored the way they interpreted the war, the way they remembered it, but also how they were willing to move forward politically uh, with surrender or emancipation, and then what's going on with Reconstruction. In just a few seconds, that's all the time we have left. Uh, you mentioned uh, your dissertation is now a manuscript. Uh, do you have a publisher in mind? Is it something we can look forward to seeing one day? I do. Uh, it's actually, at the moment, it's under advanced contract with the Uncivil War series at the University of Georgia Press. Uh, they specialize in sort of interesting, different takes on the war. So I, I think this will be a good home uh, for guerrilla memory. Well, that's something we can all look forward to. Uh, in the meantime, listeners, you will find a really fascinating series of approaches in the Civil War guerrilla, unfolding the black flag in history, memory, and myth, edited by Joseph M. Beeline, Jr. and Matthew C. Hulbert. Uh, Matt, it was great having you on the show tonight. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.